Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast for episode 112. Today, we're continuing on with our read of Robert Jackson Bennett's Divine Cities trilogy, jumping now into the first half of City of Blades. But before we do, it's time for another reminder to everyone that Inking Out Loud has a Patreon. If listening to two nerds wax rhapsodic, whoops, I'm going to try that again, Drew. If listening to two nerds wax rhapsodic or gnash their teeth over sci-fi and epic fantasy books while tasting some fancy beverages is your kind of deal, check us out. Anyone who subscribes to our Patreon has options to receive our monthly newsletter, you know, to request uh, curated reading recommendations, to read some of our own short fiction, to get access to our episodes several days in advance, or even make us read a cover or cover, I should say, a book of your choice somewhere down the line. Drew and I have been podcasting about books for well over two years now, and we haven't kept a penny to ourselves yet. All of our Patreon funding goes straight into the pockets of our talented employees. Pat the sound guy, who (laughs) spares your delicate eardrums from the savagery of my filthy mouth. And Danielle (laughs) Felcandy, who whips up a better thumbnail art in 15 seconds than I could accomplish in 15 years. These two are who you're supporting. When you subscribe, I should say, to the Inking Out Loud Patreon. Now, another disclaimer for today. The subject material for today, City of Blades, takes place from the point of view from a particularly grumpy and often amusing character who employs a lot of strong language. So Drew and I talked it over before we went live, and we decided we're just not going to censor the episodes for City of Blades, at least. So here's your warning. No mutes or cheeky censor bleeps are going to be inserted today. We're going to stay true to our main character, aren't we? So let's get down to business. I am your host, Rob Santos, joined as always by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And now let's hear from Drew. Dude, what happened in the first nine chapters of City of Blades? All right. So City of Blades picks up several years after the events of the first book, City of Stairs. Shara is now the Prime Minister of Sapor and has enacted massive change throughout their territories, including an effort to finally rebuild the infrastructure of the continent and get the Continentals back on their feet. Sigred, meanwhile, has established the United Drayling States, and Mulagesh has retired from the Sapori military. The story opens with our boy Petri traveling to Mulagesh's retreat on Javrat and convincing her, with the help of a letter and a recording from Shara, to undertake an investigation into the mysterious disappearance of a ministry agent in Vortyashtan. Vortyashtan is a bomb waiting to go off, with a gigantic drailing engineering project dredging the remnants of the Divine City from the mouth of the river in an effort to reopen the city as a viable port. Sigrid's daughter, Signe, is in charge of the operation. Multiple factions of native Burtyashtanis, or Shtanis as the uh, local garrison of Sepuri military call them, are warring in the area around the city, and a Sepuri fort looms over all of it. Mulagesh steps into the midst of all this, hoping to find out what happened to Sumitra Chaudhry and what exactly the deal is with Tenatiskite? Not entirely certain how to pronounce that. I was but saying Tenatiskite. Is there a TH yeah. or a T? I hadn't even noticed. There is a TH. Okay. Uh, But yeah, it is a newly discovered and apparently non-miraculous substance that conducts and in fact seems to amplify electrical currents. Mulagesh's investigation reveals lingering signs of Vortya, the divinity, along with brutal ritualistic murders and the existence of the Vortyashtani afterlife, where Vortya herself may still exist. 
Sigrid arrives in the middle of all this to check on things, and being one of the only people Mulagesh can trust, she reveals to Sigrid her discoveries. As of the end of chapter 9, the clock is ticking. Hmm. So. <laughs> Let's get down to it. So. Let's talk about uh, the, the style yeah. of this book. So I don't, I don't really have a ton to say concerning style today, mostly due to the fact that no, I still feel much the same. The prose is neat. Setting is cool. The lore is phenomenal. The character work is absolutely wonderful, particularly concerning Sigrid and Rada. And of course, you know, there are still a few things I don't like, mostly with Bennett's uh, his narrative pacing. A few things that I think or thought were, I should say, really predictable. But my complaints are just superficial. I'm going to ask where you want to start. So I want to start with the tone of this book. Oh. The atmosphere that Bennett has built in City of Blades through the first half. And I cannot imagine it's going to change in the second half. Uh... This is a bleak, gray, grim setting. And it meshes perfectly with his choice of main point of view character, of course, Mulagesh, which which did, you know, hurt a little bit. I got really excited when uh, Pitri was a point of view character at the beginning of the book again. And then I realized, oh no, Pitri's just his, his uh, delivery boy uh, that he uses at the beginning of, you know, each book to... <laughs> to get us to no bitterness at all there the main point of view character uh but no Muligesh herself is a, a a dark grim gray character to fit a dark grim gray setting and to me it's it it's just this it's like a puzzle pieces it's like jigsaw pieces fitting together he did such a phenomenal job establishing the setting, establishing the mood, the atmosphere. You 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 can just feel the dreariness. You can feel the foreboding history just based on the you know things as simple as the landscape. Uh it's oof, I I like the setting so much more in this book. I I liked Bulikov. It was fine. Mm-hmm. The city stairs, cool, yeah. This is something else. This See, is special. I'm right really here. glad you brought up Bleak because when I was writing about Mulagesh, and when we get to my style or my style, my character points on Mulagesh, you'll see what I'm talking about. I had used the word Bleak to describe her, and I spent a while deliberating on that because she has a still a, a go get 'em attitude. She has like a let's let's take care of issues kind of attitude that she just wants to get the hell out of there honestly at least that's what she's telling herself and i had written down bleak and i spent a while looking at that word thinking am i going to use bleak yes i think i am going to use it and so when i heard you say that we have a bleak character fitting this bleak uh setting i was like yes drew you you're right there with me but as far as mulagesh goes and this is another thing i had written about her character but i ended up deciding this is more of a style discussion so i moved it to my my style discussion i transferred one of my complaints about shara over to mulagesh who i feel mulagesh deserves it now i complained last episode that shara komade was just a tad bit too competent of a main character not as a person but just as a as a device to, to accelerate the plot i was bitching for minutes on end about how she had a habit of stewing and politicking and maneuvering for an entire portion of the book and then suddenly solving half a book's worth of mystery in a single chapter 
discovery after discovery after discovery after discovery, all at a breakneck pace. And, and it's starting to happen with Mulligish now. In our last chapter for today, which was chapter 9, over the course of a single chapter, I took care to write all this down, Mulagesh A, she has her touching conversation with Sigrid, which we're going to talk about later because, oh my god, that was amazing. But then immediately B, she tracks uh, tracks Chowdhury to her cell, whatever it was, the, the small room. Mm-hmm. She C, finds the white thumbtack in the wall, deduces, oh, there's another thumbtack just like this that I have to find. And then D deduces that that thumbtack must be in communications. And then she goes and finds that next thumbtack. E talks to the private from whom she acquires 12 weeks of communications and finds a mysterious code that Chowdhury left behind, walks outside, and then F is overcome by a memory that isn't hers, deduces that something is wrong with this area, this copse of trees, and G finds what's wrong, lifts the strange rock, and finds the secret tunnel to the mines and alerts the authorities. That was one chapter. Yeah. And that was exactly what I was bitching about with 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 Shara in the previous book. It's just everything happens at once. You spend five, six chapters establishing the setting, and then suddenly, boom, 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 boom. Everything happens, and it's like, whoa, what is happening? See, I don't have too much of an issue with that, um, especially with how lore heavy and involved the mysteries in these books are i feel like the stories wouldn't work as well as they do unless we had a sort of explosive chapter here and there that you know he spent so much time building a a mystery and and planting seeds that occasionally he needs to let them all sprout otherwise the result is Elantris. Right, but my, my issue is that they're all sprouting in the same one-foot plot of land. No, Right, right, but he, he doesn't want to spread it all out because he wants it to be a mystery. Mm. And so he's letting them sprout in clumps, but only a little bit in each clump. And each, each time a clump sprouts, it plants more seeds. And then, and then we'll eventually get to our ultimate climax. Because otherwise, like, the the narrative tension, at least in my mind, the narrative tension of the mystery doesn't get to build if if they're spread out and every single chapter there's a new revelation. It's like, no, if he, if he withholds these revelations for five or six chapters and then gives us a bunch of new information, that's like, okay, you know, that's a release of tension, but then it, it plants more seeds. It plant, you know, it, it develops new mysteries that can build intention again. And we, we get that inhalation and then five or six or seven chapters down the line, we get another revelation and, and we get to exhale. And then we get another final big breath in before the climax. I suppose part of this, part of what makes this just, uh, you know, a subjective issue for me is it's just, I, I can't help comparing this to so many other authors that I've read. Like I feel like in the hands of other authors, the, the entire conversation with uh, with Sigrid that I enjoyed so much between Sigrid and, and Mulagesh, that would have been its own chapter. Or if it was going to be part of a chapter, then you would have uh, you'd have Mulagesh, you know, discovering the cell, discovering the thumbtack, and thinking, oh no, I have to go, you know, ex- explore the entire fort now for the matching pair. Fuck. 
but that was even that was only the 25 percent point of the chapter like there was there was like i felt like there were in the hands of other authors there could have been 12 chapters in this chapter but it's, it's also yeah. what i'm expecting you know i shouldn't be putting bennett into a box there's a bit of alliteration for you well i i i, I can't say you're wrong to think that uh, i don't think I it just, is right or wrong it's just a subjective thing it's just a subjective yeah, I, thing honestly i don't have a problem with that narratively um it it makes sense to me and and it it feels right i don't know the the pacing in this book felt right to me because even when we got progression rapid progression in a chapter it never felt like it was bennett showing his hand too much um and and as far as the pace of events goes I, I felt like this book has moved quickly from the get-go. Uh, I've been... Oh my gosh, I've been so engaged. Like, it, Oh, it you've been saying so, me. yeah. Yeah, like I... Uh, <laughs> Drew's you know, been we, texting we're me recording all week. This, yeah, <laughs> we're recording this on a Saturday evening. We were originally going to re- record it on Wednesday, but uh, weren't able to do that. And so I finished reading this selection Tuesday morning. And... To not tint our conversation, I have forced myself to not continue with the book, and it is burning me up. Damn! Like I, I loved the first half. I, of I this. appreciate the dedication, like, though. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, and and so you know, basically, from the moment that we finish this episode, I'm going to be sitting down and and just tearing, cruising through the the second half. Good. But, but yeah, the, the pacing I thought was was at a nice nice clip, basically from the get-go. Uh, and it helps. Hmm. Well, this is getting a little into character, but it, but it's still in 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 the the bigger, you know, more top-down view uh, that I was talking about with the, the choice of Mulagesh as the point of view character matching the setting in Vortishtan. And uh, like in City of Stairs, I think Mulagesh is fine, but I don't love her. Like, I don't have strong feelings about her. What's really making this work for me is the supporting cast. Even more so than in City of Stairs, I think the people around Mulagesh are bringing vibrancy, the, the necessary vibrancy to a bleak setting with a bleak main character as the vehicle and uh oh it's it's just super clever plotting super clever writing on bennett's part i'm really impressed by this book so Mm. far i I, i'm (laughs) this is gonna be much like the last episode where i'm also agreeing with practically everything that drew says and saying i also am completely invested in the story by now i i have loved the first half of this book but for some reason, a lot of my style is complaints. I'm looking at my next point, and it's also a complaint. Just wait till we get to the characters. I have lots of great to say there. Um, I want to discuss the predictability, or if you think things are predictable, because we need to talk about this. Again, we need to talk about this. As an author, I feel like Bennett is many things. He is clever. He is creative. He is organized. He is articulate. But what he is not is subtle about what he's planning. For example, and this is this is impossible for me to prove because you know, we got the revelation minutes afterwards. As soon as we met Signe, the instant we met Signe, 
<clears throat> from her description, halfway through her description, I was already thinking, oh, wouldn't it be weird if this was like Sigrid's daughter? And within a minute, oh, <laughs> Will yeah. outright says it, and Signet confirms. Now, I'm gr- glad it wasn't saved for Revelation, but I, I knew it was coming about a minute before we got it. Or at least I suspected it about a minute before we got it. That's just yeah, one. I still have more to go so on, but it sounds like you want to interject. I'll let you. Yeah, your overall point, I think I mostly agree with. But this particular instance of it, I don't think he was ever trying to hide that no, she was sick. No, like daughter. I said, that was my last like, point statement there. I was glad that he didn't save yeah, it for yeah. a revelation and that it was just outright right from the beginning. But I could still tell it was coming before he before he told us. I was like, mm. yeah, yeah. But I think he wrote it to like like he knew that his readers would pick up on it. That's there po- are other possible, yeah. revelations, other things you know we've talked about with City of Stairs and Foundry Side, especially where I was like. It, it was written to be more of a surprise and it wasn't surprising. So I, I do agree with that. Um, yeah. And I'm sure, you know, we'll, we'll talk about some of our predictions later. Yeah. Well, this, this is still, and we'll see we'll one, see, but one thing that made me think that another thing that made me think that when Mulagesh asks Signe, so how exactly does a member of the Drayling Royal family come to have a hand in all this? And Signe blinks confused Drayling Royal family. Well, your daddy is, unless I'm forgetting, the heir to the Drayling throne. Signe exhales slowly through her nostrils and taps her cigarette ash into the ashtray of her armrest. The United Drayling States are a free democracy now. And I'm just sitting there in, you know, with my book in my hand going, nodding my head and thinking, hmm, yeah, I'm sure they are. And I'm sure they're always going to stay that way. Especially in fraught, desperate moments of need coming later on. I'm sure they're always going to be, you know, democratic states. You know, like these are the little things that I feel like he is starting to lay the groundwork to reveal or to change later, but I already know it's going to change. Sure. Anyway, yeah. we'll, we'll get to more predictions later, though. I have like three good ones that I want to make, but that's the end of my predictions point in my style. Next style point, my man. Unless you want to jump on that and, and still. No, no. Uh, elaborate. Go on. Uh, cha- I just want to say chapter seven out of the deeps. Oh, I love that chapter. First off, the title, Out of the Deeps. Boom. Goosebumps. Loved it. And then as soon as I open that next page, in the White Citadel, the goddess opens her eyes. I was like, oh my god, yes. What the fuck is this? This was a cool scene. It it totally does not fit with the rest of the narrative, but I'm definitely not complaining because this is the kind of scene that exists to stand out. I loved it. What'd you think? Yes. Uh, the way he has... The way he has revealed things, even even when there were situations where, like, like I went into this, the moment they brought up the, the Vortyashtani afterlife, I was like, well, this is obviously real. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, so I was expecting that to be a thing. But in the moment of revelation with it, the the manner of it was beautiful. Like, even though I saw it coming, you know, like, like the fact that it happened in the plot was not surprising. But the scene itself was still gripping because of the, like, ethereal nature of it the the almost like dreamlike quality standing out from the very grounded direct point of view we get with Mulagash. 
uh, excellent, excellent craftsman, uh, mm. craftsmanship on Bennett's part with that. Like he he knows how to use point of view. He doesn't he doesn't do a lot with it. Obviously, in this series, especially the vast majority of the points of view are from one character per book. You know, we get a a, a point of view here and there. Um, but he's he's pretty focused on you know Shara in the first book and Mulagesh in this book. He's not trying to do a, a George R. R. Martin or Robert Jordan or Brandon Sanderson kind of epic fantasy where there's seventy different point of view characters. Nothing like that. But when he does decide to shift points of view, he does a good job of using that with purpose. That's one of the kind of pitfalls I think uh, can happen with writers is this feeling of, well, I'm writing epic fantasy. I need to have a bunch of different point of view characters. And ultimately, you end up with characters who's like, you really don't need to be in their heads. Like, it doesn't add anything to the story that a specific scene is viewed from this character versus this character. You know, like... And that's one of those things that Robert Jordan was a master of, was choosing points of view. Not just writing it a lot, but choosing them. And and this is something, you know, Brandon Sanderson can can get better at. Um, but, but here, Bennett is showing, you know, he has a more restrained approach to point of view. But when he decides to shift that perspective, he's doing it with purpose. Mm-hmm. And he's executing that purpose. One sec, I need to open another note of mine because I need to find this character name again. Oh, I searched the wrong thing. No, but jumping on on exactly what you're talking about there, with choosing point of view, I need to bring up that one, that one point of view that I just raved about that I loved so much in City of Stairs. And I can't remember the guy's name, but it was right before the scene where Sigrid really gets to shine for the first time as a total badass. Yes. From, yeah. from the... the, the, oh the God, restorationist the, guy? The rest, yeah, the restorationist who took over the party. And that guy, CH, his name started with a CH. I just, oh my god, I loved that point of view. And I remember saying, I hope this guy is going to come back later and be like somebody else who I can read from behind their eyes one more time because it's just fascinating how he can, how he being Bennett can just put this filter over his voice and completely change the tone, completely change the setting, completely change the the attitude. It's just wonderful. He is so good at that. Yeah. Um... Oh, dang it. What's, what's the guy's name? I, I have the chapter. Well, here, here, I'll just search my notes and I'll find it. Uh, uh, Cheshek. Yeah, yeah. Cheshek? Cheshek? Yeah. Cheshek. Yeah. Yep. Liked that guy. Liked that. I mean, I don't like yeah, the guy, so, but I liked the point of view. <laughs> That's yeah, the exactly. end of my and, style. And even though, even though he's a nobody, his point of view is used to great effect. It's not just like the author adding in another point of view character because he feels, oh, well, it's a it's a it's an epic fantasy. It's a high fantasy story. I need to have lots of point of view characters, right? Um, I, don't, I don't know. No, I know exactly what you're saying, though. He freaked us out with that because we also had context then going into the next scene where it was 
what who's Sigrid? And then you hear the scream and you hear the crash from the, down the hall or from the next room. And you already, as the reader with the dramatic irony that he employs, you know what right. that is because you just like you're totally right. There is an absolute use for it, and it was used to magnificent effect. I do love his ability. Like, I envy his ability to do that. Mm-hmm. So that's the end of my style discussions. I'm ready to go into characters. Anything else so, style wise? Yes. Um, and I don't know how much this falls under style, but it's not character. It's, it's more theme. Uh, we didn't have time really to talk about, uh, some of the thematic, uh, kind of groundwork that Bennett laid in city of stairs in terms of the like post-colonial perspective. Um, Obviously, there, there, the there's a central conceit to this trilogy about colonialism, the the atrocities uh, perpetrated by the Continentals, uh, by the divinities upon the Sepuris, and then the Sepuri response, and how they're in turn treating the Continentals as human garbage, basically. And Shara at the end of City of Stairs is is taking those first steps to understand the humanity of the other you know with the capital o the uh, the the other people and and we get right away in this book we see shara has not just taken those first steps but has implemented giant strides to undo or or to repair not undo uh but to repair the harm of these colonial attitudes. And even though there is this directive from, from the top down in Sapor, that doesn't change the attitudes of the individual people. And here we see it magnified in Vortyashtan, where, uh, you know, Mulagesh has just arrived in the city and she's being driven up to the fortress and she hears the term Shtanis mm-hmm. for the first time. Yep. And she, Muligesh immediately has this like, mm, I don't know if I like that. Right. You know, like like she has this. Same as a reader, un- you have that too. Yeah. 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 And I'm not, I'm not going to pretend that it's subtle what, uh, <laughs> what Bennett is doing here, <laughs> but he's very clearly bringing in more um, uh, colonial and racial commentary. You know, this is, this is a rape, a racial epithet. You know, this is a, a slur mm-hmm. that the Sepuri military is using for the locals. You know, this is something that makes a lot of sense coming from an American writer in the uh, in the two thousand tens, considering some of the the strife that has gone on in this country during that time, uh, and and these colonial themes. You know, maybe. Maybe not as all-consuming in the cultural consciousness as maybe it is for for British people, considering their country's history, but uh, their nation's history. Uh, but uh, I'd be lying if there isn't some colonial uh, discussion around the way the United States has acted on the world stage in the last. 30, 40 years, right? Like, even though it's a, a different kind of colonialism than 
you know, England or Spain or Portugal or France or Belgium or whatever, you know, the way they divvied up Africa or, or in previous centuries, the way they set, set sail and, and laid claim to territories in the Americas and in Asia and things like that. Uh, there's a lot of really complicated history there. Um, uh, but, but that's not to say that there isn't any kind of complicated colonial history in America. And Bennett is really hammering that home in this book. I thought there was, there was a subtext of it in City of Stairs, but here in City of Blades, it is the text. <laughs> this is, this is not subtle at all. And, and it, again, it fits the theme. It fits the the tone of having Mulagash, this direct confrontational upfront character in Vortyashtan, which is a direct confrontational upfront sort of society. Like it, it's, it's Bennett taking multiple layers of his story and aligning them thematically. It's, it's really nice. Hmm. Well put. Well put. Let's jump into our characters, shall we? Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Mulagash. Let's talk about our point of view character, our main character. <clears throat> well, I laughed somewhere around the third or fourth viewpoint when I realized that Mulagash was going to be our main character. Not that yep. it's a bad choice on the author's part or anything. Honestly, we've been talking about how it's been a, it's been a great choice and it fits the book. It's just a ballsy move to put your readers in the head of, of an amputee for the vast majority of an entire book, but he's handling that very well. No, I laughed because I remembered our entirely underwhelmed opinion of Mulagesh during our coverage of City of Stairs. Like, we didn't really have any complaints about her as a person that I can remember, but if I remember correctly, we both just gave her a resounding meh. So the first the first pages of this book gave me a, uh, an amused chuckle. That's all. Yeah, uh, I, I think you, you probably liked her a little more than I did in that first book. Um, she just felt a little too stereotypical, yep. like... Oh, I complained about hard-ass that. ...hard-ass military veteran. Yeah, um, I complained about that. And there's... I'm, I'm not going to lie and say there hasn't been good characterization of her. Uh, you know, a an expansion of who she is and, and new conflicts with her. Um, you know, everything about the Yellow March and... Uh, her military history does bring in new dimensions to who Muligesh is, but I still like, I'm still pretty meh, uh, which is funny because I loved Shara in the first book. And I thought Shara in a large, in large part carried the first book for me. Here, Mulagash is not carrying the book. Really? It's the supporting cast and the setting that's that's got me invested. Huh. But if we had tried to... Or we, I say we. If Bennett had tried to write this book from Shara's point of view, it wouldn't have worked. Like, Shara's personality, her, her character dynamics, don't fit the yes. setting and the tone the right way. Yes. Mulagesh does. Mm -hmm, yeah. yeah. I'm obviously coming around on Mulagesh as a character myself now. Now that we're in her head for so much more of the time, her bleak attitude, her lack of manners, and her foul mouth, they don't stick out like, like here in, in Vortjestan as a main character like they did 
as a tertiary character in Bulakov. For me, they carry the narrative in very amusing ways as she finds herself in this new location, yet still surrounded by all of the same intrigue and danger. I'm finding myself amused by her attitude and her cursing, the way like I felt like Bennett wanted me to be in City of Stairs. Um, for example, when she's re receiving her message, this voice message from Shara, and Shara drops the bomb on oh, her yeah. about, you know, where you're going, what you're doing. And we have this scene with afterwards with Mulagesh. She, she buries her face. Like, first off, she goes, this is bad form. Bad form right there. Low character. Another sip. Mulagesh buries her face in her hand. Damn it all. Yep. What am I going to do? I hope you're calming down now. Says Shara's voice primly. Fuck you, says Mulagesh. And then she walks, then she just continues going. Like, I love it. You have I have that exact line <laughs> highlighted. <laughs> or uh, when she walks in on Sigrid feasting and making such a mess of her of her tea table, Mulagesh stares at the mess and holds her hands out, aggrieved. What what the fuck? I love this again. I love it. I don't know why. But it fits, as you were saying. It fits this setting. Fits his narrative in a way that it didn't quite in City of Stairs. Yeah, I, I gotta say, I think the humor is better in this book than it was in City of Stairs. Uh, although I don't think City of Stairs tried to be a funny book as much as this one is trying to. Uh, but again, that goes hand in hand with the choice of main point of view character. Uh, and and here, it's not even just Mulagash. There are other you know, there are moments with uh, with Sigrid, moments with Pitri. Uh, I laughed. I laughed so hard um, in that very first scene where Pitri's talking to the you know the owner of the like tavern, and uh, the the owner says, "You know, she bought the beach cottage on the other oh. side of the hill." <laughs> yeah. Oh, how lovely! Says Pitri, and now she won't let us hunt on her property anymore. Says the bearded man. Oh, how sad, says Pitri. Like, <laughs> <laughs> there, there are these moments of repeated, um, you know, maybe this is still kind of style discussion, but but a, a kind of humor that I haven't seen much before, uh, uh, repeated vocal mannerisms. Uh, the other one that I had highlighted was um, with Sigrid when he's telling... Uh, Mulagesh about you know what he's been up to, and, uh, and he's like you know three years ago we boarded the ship of the pirate Lindebeer. Do you know this man, Lindebeer? Afraid not. Well, he considers it thoughtfully. He was a real piece of shit. Oh yeah. And then he goes on. Though I insisted I come out when Kvarnstrom attacked a village. Do you know him, the pirate Kvarnstrom? Mulagesh shakes her head. Oh, well. He's a real piece of shit. Like, and, and then Mulagesh's next line. Yeah, I'm sensing, I'm a, sensing theme a theme here. <laughs> I know. I love it. That's something that could have fit right into the Black Company as far as I'm concerned. It's cheeky. Absolutely. It's cheeky. Yeah. It's very cheeky. Um, and it's still on Mulagesh, though. I love the fact that, and perhaps this is a, this is going to lead into a question that I'm hoping you can then answer for me, because it's just something I think I'm not remembering from the first book. She, I love that she was convinced by three words. And those words were... Make it matter. Yes. This is where I admit, I don't remember the context, though. What were those words? Why, why is make it matter such a big deal again for Mulagesh? I, forget. I, I don't remember either. I know it was in City of Stairs, but I, I didn't have time to go back. Um, yeah, you know, we, we ended up recording this episode a little late because I had some 
uh, some stuff come up and I had to run errands uh, and I, I wasn't able to completely prepare for the episode the way I wanted to. And that was one of the things I was going to look up because I, I'm pretty damn certain this was a thing in City of Stairs yeah, between and, Shara and Mulagash. Yeah. And I just can't remember the context of it. Exactly how I felt. And I was like, maybe Drew will remember. I'll Because, I'll, you know, I, I can't remember. My memory is garbage. But uh, I feel yeah. a little less less guilty now that I couldn't remember that. Thank you for validating my lack of memory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see here. I think my... Well, you know, I, my last point about Mulagash. I'll just put bring it up here instead of quoting this in my miscellaneous just because I love this so much and it's so it does set this groundwork for her character and what she's dealing with um the sword is always there it is never truly gone because since the day she picked it up it's been a part of her or perhaps she's a part of it for she knows deep down that it is really so much more than a sword to grip the black handle is to see the flickering blade uh, and see the flickering blade, is to bear witness to a thousand battles and a thousand murders and a thousand years of brutal conflict, to hear the shouts of thousands of armies and see the skies darkened with thousands of spears and arrows and watch the ground grow soft and dark with the blood of thousands of lives. It's just gorgeous. Yeah. It's some... not per- like it's not a particularly new idea in epic fantasy, you know, terrible memories of war and the damage it does in the moment and for decades afterwards. But it's rare that I get to see that sentiment explained gorgeously. It's just some wonderful wordsmithing out of Bennett there. Yeah. Uh, that was another, another passage that I had highlighted just for the, excellent, you know, <laughs> the word play. So I'm done with my Mulagesh points. Anything else about Mulagesh? Or who do you want to go on to next? No, yeah, uh, let's let's go from uh, Mugesh to uh, Biswal. Biswal. I didn't write down any points about Biswal, but okay. I can I can riff on Biswal. Okay. Yeah. So I have really enjoyed him as a character because he he has not been to my expectation. Going in, I thought he was going to be a purely like hard ass veteran, you know, like kindred spirit with Mulagesh. And in some ways he is. But he's mellower than I expected. And he has a more strategic political mindset than I expected. I I totally thought he was going to be the like, no nonsense. I, I hate all of this. Uh, I just want to be in the battlefield, you know, like that kind of stereotypical grumpy general. And he's not that. And I really appreciate it. Uh, mm. And and this, this is going to be a theme as we move through the side characters here. Uh, maybe the strongest part of this book for me so far is the way Bennett has set up side characters to be something I expect and then add layers to it mm. that I wasn't expecting. I did I did really appreciate um, a moment that he had, a conversation that he had with Mulagesh near to the end of the, the part that we were reading for today. And I don't remember the words exactly. I, I definitely didn't write this down to quote, so I'm definitely paraphrasing heavily here. But he was telling Mulagesh something along the lines of, you know, not all of us get the recognition of a hero. You know, some of yes. us are just tossed aside like a like a matchbox or, or something like that, disposable. And that really kind of 
cleared the water and or I should say like just defogged the lens on which I'm viewing this guy. It's like, you know what? I'm not I am sort of invested in where he goes. And I do have a prediction to make about him. I kind of want to make it now before I forget about it because I just made it and I'm not going to remember to, to write it down for later. I think that Mulagesh is going to witness him perform a heroic sacrificial act later in this book. Because they all have dark memories that they want to get free of and they all want redemption, I think, for the, uh, the uh, oh, what was it called? The, the Summer of Black Rivers, Summer of Black Waters or like Yellow Company? Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, I think the Yellow March. The, the Yellow yeah. March, yeah. I think that um, he's going to perform a redemptive act in this book for, for his part and his involvement in that. And we're only going to be able to appreciate it, truly appreciate it, through the eyes of somebody with the context like Mulagesh. Okay. That I would just, be a nice character yeah, moment. That that just occurred to me, and I knew I was not going to remember it during our miscellaneous our <laughs> predictions, so I wanted to get yeah, it out. So. I'm on board. Cool. I would, I would like to see that. Cool. Uh, uh, do you have any notes on Nadar? Captain Nadar. Oh, the the racist? Nah, I'm good. Okay. Yeah. That was more or less what I was going to say as well. Um, <laughs> yeah. I couldn't geez. remember, actually. You were talking about, about racial tension early, like like five, ten minutes ago, and I was going to say, this is all yeah. coming mostly from one specific character, but I couldn't remember the character's name. Thank you. Yeah, Nadar. it's... There's, there's like... You know, there there are hints of it. There are lots of other people who use the term Shtanis, but Captain Nadar is the most egregious in that emblematic yeah. in her uh, in her hate for the locals. Um, I wonder if there's a reason, and, and her inability to look past it at unanswered questions and Ooh. things that don't you know mesh. What if there's a deeper so. story there? Mm, definitely possible i'm interested i didn't consider that until now yeah i mean i just kind of write her off as a as a racist who's going to learn her lesson before the end of the book and she's going to have her eyes open for her probably hopefully Hopefully. from uh at the hands of uh our polis governor maybe maybe so hmm Anyone else? Uh, I still have Sigrid and Rada. Yeah, so I was trying to segue into Rada there oh, with that. There's just me grabbing at your tits. Sorry, Drew. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> it's a King Killer reference. No, it, it, uh, I'm really impressed with the way he handled Rada as a... Uh, a person torn between two kind of worlds and as a person with a stutter. So I like, like in, in my fairly limited, but, but I do have some experience. I had a, I had a decent friend back in college who, who had a stutter and this rings very, very true to how, um, like how that stutter worked. Like the, the more external pressure my friend felt like he was under, the more he would stutter. And if he started feeling embarrassed by the stutter, it was like this horrible feedback loop and he would just get stuck. And mm. you have to be like, you know, look, like, no, like, come you don't, no, no worries. You know, take, take your time, you know, that kind of thing. I, and so yeah. her being, 
not just a public figure, but like a really important public figure who has to give, you know, who has to address rowdy, upset, uh, powerful people fairly commonly, you know, like that's got to be brutally difficult. But then we see her in her element when she's comfortable. She's not under pressure. She's, she's doing her job and she doesn't stutter at all. Mm. And that also <coughs> rings true to you know, what I've seen with, with my friend in college where when he was super comfortable. So this guy was a big, big video game, big video game guy. And he particularly liked playing super smash brothers. And if you got him talking about smash, his stutter disappeared. Wow. Just totally, totally gone. You know, you know, I've, I never really struggled too much with a stutter. I've, I mean, I, as everybody does, I just stutter when I'm under pressure, but I wasn't, you know, it was never to the point of an actual neurological disorder. I do, however, suffer from another neurological disorder. Drew, I'm pretty sure you know this. I have Tourette's. I was diagnosed with Tourette's when I was seven years old. And so, mm-hmm. on one hand, I could really appreciate the fact that Bennett went, you know, did his homework, and he went and he and he made it appear. Obviously, it's 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 a very genuine character trait, and he was very deft with it too, especially when he took that stutter away as she was in her element, as she was comfortable. I did appreciate that, but as a character, I am very super sus of Rada Smolisk. Super sus. Really? Yes. Okay. She's just so non-threatening. The stutter, I think, is something that can be practiced to appear natural, to make others dismissive, perhaps, as a, as a threat. And then when we got to the actual autopsy scene, lo and behold, she stopped stuttering. I'd originally written down, oh, that's some wonderful character work right there. I, I guess the stutter is natural, and it's really cool that being engaged sort of helps smooth it out. This is one of those descriptions that I love. This is still reading from my notes at the time. One of those descriptions of character that I love, much like the the, the description of Ephraim Pangui that I waxed rhapsodic about in City of Stairs in the passage about his fascination with hands, you know. But mm-hmm. my paranoid, always seeking the clues brain went, hmm, maybe her stutter disappeared because she was focusing too much on the body and she forgot that she needed to act. Perhaps her brain can only do so much at once. I'm just sus of her. This quote now, that we... Uh... I think you're you're far too paranoid there. I, I very well could be in Absolutely. story and out of story reasons. Uh, I I really do think uh, Bennett is including her as a character with a disability for representation reasons, and he would never do that and then rip it out from under, you know rip that rug out from under the feet of those readers who may be seeing themselves in a story for the first time. I cannot imagine he would do that. <laughs> I'm a little bit like Vin like that would, in, that would in The Well of so Ascension, just like set with his broken legs or his, his useless legs. That's the that's, perfect that's cover. That's different, though. That's very oh, that's a, different. That's a spoiler. I'm going to have to censor that. What am I saying? Oh, yeah, my God. That's that's a very different circumstance. That's a a First off, that's a far more common disability and a far more common disability in terms of representation in fiction you see a lot more characters who are you know who do not have the use of their legs than you do people with a stutter really uh and and bennett Mm. is yeah 
Can you name one other character you've Quirrell. ever read in science fiction and fantasy? Quirrell. Professor Quirrell from Harry Potter. Okay, good. All right. Can you name another one? No, I can't. But I can't name another one besides uh, Ashweather Set or uh, Rissen from the the Stormlight Archive. Granted, you've done mm. a lot more reading. I will have to concede this uh, one to you. You've read you've, many more You've books read at now. least one other character on Inking Out Loud. Oh, God, Kane. Yeah, but that was for one book. Not even one book. Well, yeah, most of one book. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and another one that you're forgetting. I'm already, I'm already going to see that read, one to you because you have read, read ten books for every certain, one that I have. A certain uh, character in Gemini and Obsidia. Oh my God, Ella Malakova. Oh God. Okay. All right. <laughs> I uh, I will see that point that it is that that paraplegics yeah. and quadriplegics no, are mo- vastly I, more represented. I, in I, I'm just saying, fantasy. I cannot imagine that that Bennett would use a speech impediment like that. I don't want to use the word like exploitatively because I think that's like being way too harsh on it, but I, it, it is in a way exploiting like something that I'm sure there are a lot of readers out there who, who have a speech impediment like that, who are thrilled to what? see it represented in a story. I think that's a slippery And then to have it like ripped out from under them. Because then you could never cover anything with a disability or a fake disability because then you run the risk of exploitation. But again, it comes down to degrees. If you, if you have characters all over the place with stutters in books, yeah, fine, whatever. Like this is a trope at that point. And then you can be like, well, I'm going to subvert the trope. Okay. I this is see. not a trope. This well, is not a common thing. I'm going to continue explaining <laughs> why I'm still sus of her, though, because it's not just the stutter. It's so not just the stutter. I just thought, yeah, that would be a, a neat cover just, you know, for, for a spy to practice to try and, like, yeah, you know, uh, misdirect suspicion. But um, this outlook of hers, too. And I love the, the wording of this, the wordsmithing of this. We are beautiful, strange creatures of heat and noise, of sudden, inscrutable impulses of savage passions. And then after that, yet when we consider our own existence, we think ourselves calm, composed, rational, in control, all the while forgetting that we are at the mercy of these rebellious hidden systems and the elements, of course. And when the elements have their way and the tiny fire within us flickers out, what then? A last, uh, a blast of silence, probably, and nothing more. I mean, that's some gorgeous writing. Gorgeous. And it's yes. an interesting outlook. When you take it apart and you dissect its meeting, it's a very bleak outlook, you know? I still have more, but it sounds like you want to jump in, so I'll let you. Well, no, I think that's um, emblematic of her unique perspective as someone, as a Vrtishtani who has been steeped in Sepuri culture. Yep. And and has a, a twisted blend of cultural mores uh, where, where she doesn't fully subscribe to the brutal, you know, violent outlook on life of the, uh, you know, Vortyashtani religion, but she also doesn't fully ascribe to the purely like humanist Sepuri culture. And she ends up falling in this kind of like bleak middle ground because of it. Hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I remember um, 
as soon as, like I said, that stutter went away, my first thought was, okay, that's that's not a cover. That's organic, and it's just a really neat character touch that it would go away when she's really properly engaged by something. That makes sense. But then we'd make the discovery that this is not the corpse of Sumidra Chowdhury. And my brain went right back to, again, my paranoid look for all the clues brain goes right back to, oh, Rada is sus again. Come to think of it, we just had to take her word, on her word, that the cuts on this body are too neat even for surgical tools. I mean, Mulagesh, like any rational person, would not look too closely at the cuts themselves, you know, or teeth marks on them. That's a really neat way for Rada, perhaps, to extricate herself from suspicion. You know, all of us, assuming her tools, couldn't take this body apart as neatly as we trust it having been done without looking ourselves. And I thought, would she, would she though? Would she have anything to gain fooling others into thinking Chowdhury is actually dead? Maybe she's in league with Chowdhury who wants everyone else to think she's dead. But then that's the point, Drew. That's the point. You'll probably be glad to hear this. That my brain goes, okay, Rob, that's just, that's a step beyond reason right there. Tad it in, rain it in a tad, man. Come on. You're just, you're, you're too paranoid. <laughs> but I still want to list these so, thoughts on the off chance. On the off chance. The, the one thing, the one bit of admittedly very circumstantial evidence that I could see, you know, being some, uh, some, some of a hint is the report of, you know, what happened with the charcoal maker and how there was a small, slight woman there with the, you know, the sentinel as we have come to discover now. Antlered creature. Yeah. And that, you know, it's immediately, it's like, oh, well that sounds like Chowdhury. But Rada is also a small, slight woman. You know, she could fit that physical profile and she was cloaked. So we don't really know the physical characteristics, whether it was a Sepuri or what. Um, I I do say I don't I don't think it's just going to be, oh, yeah, Chowdhury is trying to resurrect Vortya now or something like that. Um, if she, if it is Chowdhury involved with it, there's a good reason for it mm-hmm. that she's trying to protect Sapor. I'll tell you why, why I don't think but, it's Chowdhury who's doing this because Mulagesh thinks it's Chowdhury. So as readers, we're supposed to think it's Chowdhury. Yeah. That's why I don't yeah, think exactly. it's Chowdhury. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Although I, I'd be lying if I said I haven't read books recently where an author tried to like double cross the reader like that, where they're like, uh, there was, there was another book I read uh, a couple of years ago that was had this like murder mystery going on and the main character was super suspicious of uh, another character and it was like the whole time you're like well yeah it's way too obvious that it's this character so it's totally going to be somebody else and then it's like no no it was the character who was super obvious yeah and the so is the author trying to like That's pull a fast of, one on you by of your paranoia i love it yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so, so who i don't knows? know I think I think Chowdhury stumbled across something she wasn't supposed to stumble across. She got pulled into so many things that she wasn't prepared for. And uh, the person I'm most sus of is Radha Smolisk, just because because she is just so non-threatening. I'm paranoid. I mean, I could I could see her still being involved in it. I just I don't think the stutter is fake. Oh, sh- hey hey, it, they're not mutually exclusive. <laughs> it could yeah, absolutely yeah. just be part of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Um, my I'm, last character to talk about is Signe. 
Oh, Signe. I was. I, you don't have anything about Sigrid. Well, I I had a feeling we'd have much more to talk about with him in the second half. So oh, yeah, I was like, sure yeah, we will. I don't. Sorry, continue um, with Signe, and then I'll I'll do Sigrid afterwards. I'm a huge fan of Signe. Are you? Oh, big book crush. Okay, listen. But uh, I was gonna say I, book crush from on my house. She sounds very attractive, but I don't like her as a, really as a person. She just I don't know. Oh, see, I do. I I love her abrasiveness, <laughs> and I love her like pragmatic outlook. She's very driven, um, but she does it without being hypocritical. That's key. I I. I have encountered other characters who who have the same sort of intelligence and drive, but are underhanded in how they go about um, achieving their goals. And she's not underhanded. She's political, but she's not a backstabber. She's not hypocritical. Yet. You know, yet. I'm gonna reserve judgment. There's <laughs> there's still a, a possibility, but like again, I just I don't know if I see um, with the like character conflict between Signe and Sigrid. I don't know if I see Bennett making her some like two time conniving bitch. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And I don't want her to be like I. I find her to be a really compelling character, and I would like to root for her. Hmm. So, everything I have about Signe is in my predictions. So I will politely okay. decline for now because I'll I'll get there. I will just promise that I'll get there. Sure. So, uh, anything else about Signe before Sigrid? No, I, I mean they're they're kind of together. Um, for for my last kind of remark Hmm. and that was just how uh i did not expect them to be so distant so at odds yep like i i kind of just assumed that uh you know her pragmatic sensibilities would have aligned really nicely with sigrid's personality even with the estrangement it would have been like uh in my mind they would have connected really well and so it was interesting to see how they didn't connect yeah but i still think there's there's that open path that they will find understanding on that level um you know as as the story goes on Hmm. yeah um I wasn't prepared to like that distance because I would uh, just like you drew. I would have I wouldn't have quite assumed there'd be this much distance if you had told me that Sigrid's child is now grown up and that this, she's going to be a, a, a large part of book two. But that distance, even though it's there and it took me by surprise, I still found it refreshing because I didn't expect it. Um, but going on with Sigrid, <clears throat> I'll say after a half dozen chapters I, of, of Mulagesh, I was totally not expecting to see Sigrid at all in this book. So I was stoked to hear yeah. when he was suddenly imminent. And I love that he's struggling with his new office and everything that's expected of him. Um, this this interaction with Signe there. I heard, he says quietly, that someone shot at you. What? 
Someone yeah. shot at you, clipped your hair. Is this true? Oh, that, you know, that happened some time ago. We've taken extra security measures since. And the bombing, <laughs> the explosives, you considered this a threat as well. He looks at her, his one eye shining strangely. Shining strangely, is it? I just want to draw a point there on that descriptor. What what are you implying there? Because mm. I read that. It sounds like I read that very differently than you did. Well, <clears throat> didn't I have this? I'm pretty sure in, in City of Blades, or City of Blades, City of Stairs, at least in part one or two, I got a little bit of a hint of the supernatural with Sigrid, especially from Broski's point of view. Starts with a CH. I can't remember it once oh, yeah. again. Yeah, and he looked up and saw his... Shayshek. Yeah, and he looked up yeah. and saw his eyes, like, shine. I thought it was, like, glowing with, like, white light or, like, white flame or something like that. And then I think you said something like, oh, I don't really remember that. I just kind of read it off. But here, again, shining strangely. Just those two words kind of aroused my suspicion. I was like, huh? Well, there's, there's absolutely some sort of, you know, magical thing going on with him. You know, just at the very least in his durability yeah <laughs> like I mean, shine it's just the strangely because shining eyes shine all the time in epic fantasy and sci-fi well, no, eyes so shining in, with tears. in this scene yeah in this scene i really did read it as uh shining with tears and that it was strange to see sigrid having a <sighs> wet eye and it was because he's he's talking about his daughter possibly being killed Okay. And we're seeing a new there's vulnerable that, side of Sigrid in this book. There's that paranoid part of my brain going on again, paying way too much attention. I mean, attention what, what to would it. he have been doing mystical in that scene? I don't know. Like, I don't know. I'm yeah. just so locked and loaded and ready to pick up on anything that seems out of place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is I, what happens. I, this is what I Brandon Sanderson much, does to you if you read yeah. too much Brandon Sanderson. I'm just going to say that. It, it is true. It is true. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I thought that was just a... a kind of a beautiful tender moment I had uh, showing tears. a new a new dimension to Sigrid and you know what and what does that say about the talent of the author that I hadn't even considered tears out of this man <laughs> it's good stuff it's good stuff yeah um, my last point about Sigrid is this quote of his that I'm probably just going to say it outright right now it's probably going to make my final or my, my favorite scenes in this book once we get to it in the next episode <clears throat> this conversation with Mulagesh, right near the end of our reading for this week. Mm-hmm. Why would she want to know me? He says, how do I tell my daughter what I've seen, what mm-hmm. I've done? How do I tell her that at times in prison, I, I became so furious that my own blood would leap out of me, pouring out of my nose. I would go mad with anger, a berserk rage, hurting anyone and everyone around me, even myself. Sometimes innocence, sometimes mere bystanders. I throttled them to death with my bare hands. And then after Mulajesh has a small interjection there. When I was a young man, and she was just a little girl, long ago, I, I used to chase her through the forest near our home. It was a game. She would hide, and I would pretend to chase her. And then she would pretend to chase me. And later, when I was in prison, when I thought I would go mad, I held on to this very tightly, this memory of the little blonde girl laughing as she ran through the forest. This tiny perfect creature darting among those great big trees. When the world grinds you down, you pick a handful of fires to hold close to your heart. And that one was mine. I, su- I just suppose I just assumed that she would remember this too. 
that she would see me and remember that moment in the trees, laughing as we ran. But she does not remember, and perhaps I was foolish to think she would. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh my god. I was not ready for Sigrid to hurt me in that place, and he did. Jesus Christ, Bennett, that was so good. That was so good. Yes, it was. So that 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 wraps up pretty much all of my character points, except for Signe, which I'll get to in predictions. Uh, anything you want to go into miscellaneous? Uh, yeah, yeah. Let's uh, head on into miscellaneous and predictions. Okay. All right. What are we? What's our running time at now? About an hour and few. Okay. Yeah, just so, about an hour. <clears throat> all right. Um. Let's see here. Predictions. Uh, oh, I already already brought up the one that I said I moved from miscellaneous into Mulagesh, but my last one here. Um, Mulagesh replays the last thing she saw in her head or what she thought she saw that moment that vision felt like it was beyond seeing as if she experienced a world with senses beyond the common five her pulse rises immediately it's still there the city of blades is still out there somehow it's an absurd idea yet what she saw doesn't leave a trace of doubt in her mind to say otherwise would be like walking through a rainstorm for the first time in your life and then denying you were ever wet so, this is oddly, specifically, like what dimethyltryptamine users say, DMT users say about that drug. Joe Rogan talks about it freely. He uh, Apparently, DMT supposedly opens up other senses, and it allows one to see the universe through new eyes, or something like that. And I've heard a lot of other people talk about DMT, some of which I work with, which is I'm not proud of, um, but that's just the kind of shop I work in. And then, I remembered everything that happened in book one with the psychoactive drugs that allow some few to glimpse a form of reality that others can't see, most notably at the climax at the end with Shara literally tripping balls as she confronts the divinities. The philosopher's den, yeah. There's a connection somehow between this in-world psychoactive drug and our real-world DMT, or at least how DMT is described. Huh. Well, I'm, I'm going to have to take your word for it because <laughs> not only do I not know anything about that, but I've never even heard of that drug before. Uh, <laughs> Dimethyltryptamine. Okay. Does it, does it like have a, does it have like a more common name? Yeah, just DMT. Know of? Just DMT is what the, okay. what's called. DMT. It's not like bath salts or anything like that. No, no, no. It's apparently it's the one. It's it's the one drug where 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 men and women will just be like, no, seriously, there is another universe beyond ours, and you can only unlock it with DMT. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised not to cast any kind of aspersions if Bennett himself perhaps has experimented with some psychoactive substances just to improve his writing. Who knows? I mean, <laughs> I have never done anything like it. I'm not saying he has. I highly doubt he has. But it would be interesting. It would be interesting. It huh. would lend a lot to well, the writing. That's, that was a, not a conversation I was expecting. No, uh, no, hey. I, sh- I don't ahead. want anyone to walk away from this and be like, oh, Rob thinks Bennett's dropping DMT. That's my internet troll <laughs> no, voice, by well, the way. Well, Drew, Drew learned about a new drug today. and uh... <laughs> I'm glad that for once, the learning goes in the opposite direction, and Drew got to learn something from me today. So... Yeah, look it up. DMT, yeah, anybody I, who's listening. It's, it sounds a lot like... I, I do think you you may be onto something there. There is the in-world lore track record, you know, from from City of Stairs, so... 
Perhaps I should have saved that for uh, predictions. <laughs> well, we have predictions next anyway, so it kind of fits. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, Let's count I, that I as have, my first prediction. Then. <laughs> uh, okay, so I have a I have a miscellaneous point that is is going to slightly border, so this will be a good segue into predictions. Okay. When Mulagash is getting her tour of the yards, we have, um, you know, kind of the description from Biswal. He says, you know. My predecessor tried to disrupt the insurgent bastions in the mountains, and that was a miserable failure. It cost him his life. For now, the military council's orders are strictly to hold on. Fortify. Protect the harbor. As if it needs it. The Draylings practically have their own army down there. They've even got a damned minigun. This minigun has popped up several times now. And it's always unmanned. Has it? been mentioned several times and i just the first time it was mentioned i was like you know what chekhov's gun oh god literally jukov's minigun okay (laughs) okay all right that that thing is a going to get used and b i think it is an automated turret ah so not like a Gatling gun. Mulagesh specifically points out how it's unmanned when she sees it. Like every time she sees it, there's nobody manning the gun. <laughs> I think the Draylings, I think Signy has developed some sort of automation and it's going to play a role. I think I speak for the vast majority of our international listeners when I say that is a remarkably American thing to notice there, Drew McCaffrey. <laughs> I think it is. Why? Because oh, America loves now. guns. You pay attention when you see a gun. It's like, what's on it? What's what's this? What's that? I didn't even cons- I didn't remember there was a gun. I don't remember hearing about the minigun. Oh, I mean, this isn't this isn't a gun thing. This is a, a literary device. Chekhov's gun. Thing. I know. I'm like, mostly just making a joke about it. the American notice yeah. the guns. It's oh, a very well, surface I level, mean, easy, low hanging fruit joke to make. Yeah, I I'm like I am a gun owner. I'm not a gun nut. I have a the the last time I shot the gun that I own was like four years ago. No shit. <laughs> yeah, I have a I have like a you know dinky little twenty two rifle that. That's all you need. You know, my my dad bought me when I was like seventeen or eighteen, and I've I've probably taken it to the range three times ever. <laughs> <laughs> Say, I I have never even laid finger on a firearm ever in my life. I have to change that. I need to change that. I want to learn. I mean, I'll, I'll say it, like, going to a gun range, responsibly handling a firearm at a gun range with supervision and training, a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I've got a friend who's, <laughs> all of my friends are in the military, all of them, literally all of them, <laughs> and they're still trying to get me to go to the military, and one of them has an older brother who's in weapons tech, and this guy, mm. not the guy who's in weapons tech, but my best friend, well, my one of my best friends, um, he... I swear to God, this guy, he's a Canadian. Put it this way. He's a Canadian. He owns like 19 rifles, four shotguns, two World War One pistols and stuff like that. Like he's mm. gone. He's just a nut. He knows everything. Yeah, he's a collector. Yeah. He's he's an enthusiast, right? Yeah. But uh, hey, <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's, a, not it, me. <laughs> it's a whole culture that, that seems interesting. 
No, I've never dipped my toe into those proverbial waters, but someday maybe need so, something when so I get actually, older. I have one more note. Um, just a, a callback to a previous series we covered, The Acts of Cain. Uh, something that just reminded me very strongly. Um, it's the ooh, uh, let's see what chapter it is. On my ebook, okay, it's the beginning of chapter five. Uh, the the epigraph uh, from Doctor Pengui's The Continental Empire, talking about Vortyashtani blades, and he he ends it by saying, "There are even some co- uh, stories of common continentals wielding a Vortyashtani blade and becoming possessed by the previous owner, uh-huh. undergoing a grotesque transformation to do so." There is not much evidence found to substantiate these claims, however, and this myth may simply be an exaggeration of Vortya's relationship to her warriors. She asked them to be weapons for her, and weapons are what they willingly became. Well, first off, they're totally getting possessed and, like, transformed by the blades. Yeah, definitely Um, walking right into one of my predictions. Second off. Keep going, man. Yeah, uh, second off, it reminded me forcibly of... The theophanic fetches in Cain Black Knife with the black knives with the black knife Oberloi. Uh huh. And and the uh the like the game the the virtual reality game via the like fetch. Theophanic fetch system that uh, leisure children were playing in Perthens Ford with the black knives. Yeah, a lot of unpleasant memories coming back during my readings of those days now. <laughs> oh, it's fine. Well, in, in just a couple of weeks here, we're going to start the gap cycle. So. Oh, yay. Great. <laughs> awesome. But yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. I hadn't considered it. Yeah, that... That was, I, as I was reading it, I was just like, oh my gosh, like vivid flashbacks to Kane Black Knife. So, mm, cool. So, yeah, uh, if you want to dive into predictions, I'll throw one out. I have three predictions to make, well, three more to make, I should say, besides what I've already made today. Uh, most notably, with, um, oh my god, the general. It starts with a B. What's his name? Biswall. Biswall. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, besides that one, um, I want to make a prediction. Number one, I'm going to come out and say, uh, I have no way of, of proving that I saw this coming, but or at least I was worried that I wouldn't have a way of proving that I saw this coming, but it didn't come true in the first half, so it might yet. Um, I'll state it now. I think that Signe is going to be a potential romantic interest for Mulagesh. Hmm. All right. Now, Mulagesh, I have, I have three supporting points here. A. Mulagesh hasn't shown any interest in men at this point in the narrative, like at all. Not to say that she's shown any interest in women either, until I think when she meets Signe. Now, she doesn't have any outright attraction, obviously. She doesn't even think of anything like that. But some of her thoughts wander, and they started to catch my attention. First off, the length of the description that Signe got through Mulagesh's eyes was a good deal longer than any other characters have been described in their appearance. Bennett spent a lot more time describing Signe from Mulagesh's point of view than I think he than I noticed that he described anybody else in this book so far. B, my second point. 
The descriptions themselves and what's contained in them started to make sense when I considered this. Muligesh notices Signe's hands, the rough work they've seen, the calluses that are there. Signe puts out a cigarette. Hey! She also smokes. Right on her calloused fingers. And Muligesh thinks, those calluses run deep. And then she's super impressed by how the project, the construction, the, the cranes, they were all Signe's idea. And later, we see Signe in a... This is, this is a really stupid point. But we see Signe in a leather jacket, which I'll add isn't exactly the most feminine of attire. I don't know. It just reminds me a lot of Mulagesh herself, or she reminds me a lot of Mulagesh herself. Had the latter made academic choices in life rather than military ones? The age gap is a thing. I get the impression that Signe's in her mid-20s. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, young, young woman. Yeah. Well, Mulagesh is in her 50s, I think. You know? Mm -hmm. But my Retirement third, age. Yeah. When Mulagesh asks her, what tribe did you live with? Signe pulls a face, as if she's just asked her something deeply distasteful. And then Mulagesh goes, what? It's not like I asked you your sexual preference or anything. I came to that line in, uh, oh, oh Jesus Christ, phrasing, I guess. Um, oh yeah, wouldn't you like to know Mulagesh? I'll put money on it. We'll find out Signe is at least bisexual, and then we'll find out within a hundred pages. Now we're at the halfway point of the book, and we haven't had anything close to that, so I'm starting to doubt myself. <laughs> I could be wrong, I'm probably wrong. But I still want to get it out there, just like my previous things, just in case. Just in case. Huh. I'm putting that out there. I... Sounds like you didn't pick I up on any of that at all. See... Uh, so I don't see them being a match. Oh, I, the match is an entirely different thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we did get a little bit of a hint uh, that Mulagesh has been married in the past. Did we? Oh my god, I must have missed yeah, that. Yeah, but but it was like a failed marriage. Huh. And you know, it, so that doesn't really say anything uh, one way or the other. Of course. It's like, well, yeah. maybe maybe she is straight and it was just a bad relationship or maybe she is into women and the marriage failed because of that. Or, you know, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I didn't get... Huh. It's interesting. I, I, I'm going to have to keep an eye on... On Signe especially. Because well, I didn't get any... Um, sexuality vibes from her of any kind. Right. She struck me a lot more like... A, um, a character like Yasna. Who's just... Right. She doesn't even pay attention She's like she's got mm -hmm. more important things on her plate than worrying about who she's gonna get with. Yeah, um, I'll add this too. Not that not that this um, supports the the theory. It might actually detract from it a little bit. Um, but we already have in this exact series in City of Stairs, we already had um, this this concept of a relationship failing because one person is sort of lying to themselves about their sexual preferences with Vo. Uh -huh. Right. We know that that relationship between Shara and Vo, Vohanis went sour because he was really trying to fool himself and that he really was all along vastly more attracted to men. And that's kind of what, you know, this part of what ended their relationship or at least led to it ending. So I, now that I say that, I don't think Bennett would do that sort of thing twice talking about Mulagesh's earlier marriage, but it still could be the case. I just, again, I'm casting a very wide net hoping that I catch anything, <laughs> you know? So Fair enough. 
Okay. Okay. Prediction? I have two more, but I'll let you take one now. Go ahead. Well, I've already kind of given um, a couple of predictions, so you, you go ahead. Here. Okay. <clears throat> now, I'm not sure where this is going, but I've assembled some pieces, and I think they do fit together, even if I don't know how. Okay. And this is where I will say the predictability thing is is not bad. This is actually really, really well seated. The mystery here. The properties of thanatoskite. I'm just going to call it that. Thanatoskite. The properties themselves are pretty sus. You know, a 90-whatever electrical unit that they opted to use, and I totally don't remember the name of, a 90-unit battery killed a 110-unit light. And they're freaked out that this implies that it adds power. Right? But my thought was, maybe yes. it's not a... Sorry, you were, gonna, were you going to inter- interject there? No, I just said yes. Oh, okay. I thought you said so. Um, but I thought maybe it's not a total amount problem. Maybe it's a rate of draw problem. As in the Thanatoskite draws all of the power of the battery at once in one burst. I don't know. I was considering this and then I came across the quote. Understandably, the relationship between a warrior's soul and its blade carried enormous spiritual importance. For Vurjistanis, if the warrior survived for long enough, it was said that the draw, the sword, would become the vessel of their soul, and their body simply a tool for wielding it. And I had just been thinking about drawing power with Thanatoskite, so I thought in that moment, what if Vurjistani blades, Thanatoskite blades, could draw out the soul? And then I remembered the title of the entire book. It's called City of Blades, and this idea that blades can be souls. And now with our revelation that there are potentially millions of Vortgestani souls on the other side, these pieces fit together. I just can't figure out how they do. But I know I'm onto something. I know I'm onto something. You know, you are. I At least I I think you are. City this ties back to... City of souls? Um, yeah, souls I, I think the Zanatoskite is uh, divine in nature. But it's it's not like by the hand of Vortia, and that's why it's not showing up on the tests or whatever. And there's also some there's also some uh, leeway there because the tests were being administered by somebody who may not have had the best of intentions uh, in mind, mm-hmm. but uh, who whom we have already had some evidence of doing other divine rituals. Uh, but yep. I, I do think the blades are made of this substance. Yep. And I think this ties back to that uh, black knife point I was making. Yeah. You know, where it's it it can inhale or like possess somebody, but it can it can also possess a soul and draw that soul back from the afterlife to the real world. And that's the so that's why we're seeing the the like remnants at the crime scene, you know, of Tenatuskite. Yeah. Um, because they're like making more swords and drawing souls from the afterlife back to the real world through hmm. the swords. My, my last, that's, prediction. that's my theory. There. We're still on. <clears throat> that's good. Cause I can continue with my last prediction. Then we're still on Tenatuskite. The fact that it's not in ore form, 
but rather it's it's more particulate matter that's distributed over the mining site i think with our lore about the blades and the souls being connected we got also got this bit of lore that apparently um the blades allow telepathy between souls all that fun stuff mm -hmm. um that the thanatoskite may in some way be a form of Vortia's soul itself or, or maybe just her blade or her her soul whatever and it was obliterated at some point resulting in all these fragments so tiny spread over such a wide area and this cave-in what if that wasn't sabotage what if that was not an explosive i'd be interested oh, totally in finding wasn't. yeah i'd be exactly i'd be interested in finding out what if once the rubble is cleared and the tunnels are rebuilt suddenly all of the thanatoskite is gone and they, they can't find any more of it what if it was all all these particular like particulate matter were suddenly pulled away or formed into another sword again that that would definitely destabilize the entire region wouldn't it and didn't mulagesh actually see a vision of the sword being stabbed or slashed through into the mines well so she had the vision of workia rising out of the sea and and like slamming down onto the cliffs uh and and she was right by the mines i mean that's totally what happened right mm -hmm. like I'm, yeah, my memory's a little foggy because I was a little tired when I wrote it. But I, I, I remember thinking, what if all these particles of Thanatoskite just formed, were pulled up, like summoned by Vortia once more, and all of them formed into this mm. giant blade, and that destabilized the entire region because, you know, there was just literal metric tons of it in particulate form throughout the entire mine. It was just all pulled away at once. Oh. I don't know. I'm, uh, I'm on there. Okay. I'm watching. Okay. Yeah. And, of course, my other two predictions Keeping. were with... With Biswal and uh, with Rada being sus, right, yeah. right, and yeah, 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 that's right. So I'm done with everything about City of Blades Part One. I'm ready to go into the final draft. Do you have anything else? Closing thoughts? Um, no, I don't think so. I think I'm going to hate uh, myself in I'm about just, a day. I'm really, really freaking excited to continue on with this book. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm going to hate myself in about a day when I remember another prediction that I had that I totally forgot to mention here. So but I'll, I'll trepidatiously continue and say we should go into the final draft. Yes. All right, let's do it. What are you drinking? So I'm still sober. So I, I'm on day 24 now or something like that of not drinking any alcohol. I am just drinking, I don't even remember the name of it or the brand, some sort of <laughs> some sort of cram, uh, mango cranberry bullshit. That's what I'm drinking. Mm. It's pretty good. Okay. Pretty good. Nice and tangy. I've had half a glass so far. No sugar. It's a diet. There's no calories in there. I'm on also like day six cool. of keto now, although that sucks. But yeah, <laughs> I'm just drinking some cranberry mango bullshit. All right. What about you, okay. dude? Well, uh, I I am drinking a beer. Oh. I am drinking. I know that's a big surprise. Some hoppy watery bullshit. Let's hear it. Uh, not so much hoppy. No? Definitely malty. Malty. Hmm. This is a barrel-aged stout. Oh, stout. From Cerebro Brewing Company in Denver, Colorado. Whom we've had for, from before, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I recognize the name. I believe I had another barrel-aged stout from them on our Dawn Shard episode. Oh. Uh, this is a blend of two base stouts. Aged in two varieties of rye whiskey barrels for 22 months, and then conditioned on toasted coconut, hazelnut, Madagascar vanilla, and lactose. It's 13.3%. Nice. It is 
dessert. It's very, very, very good. Uh, I I wish the barrel were a little. I wish like the rye whiskey flavor was a little more present. The this is the second bottle of this beer that I've opened, and I think the first one was better. Uh, the the rye whiskey flavor has fallen off quite a bit, and now it's just like tons of vanilla, creamy vanilla hazelnut, like toasted coconut. That's where you had me. I mean, it's 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 good. It's still really good, but could be better. Anyway, this beer is called Mysterious Forces. Very nice. Very thematically appropriate. Very ominous. Ominous? Ominous. God, I can't speak. You'd think my speaking would improve after I stopped drinking. Yeah. <laughs> well, I I think that uh, that brings us to the end of our episode. Yeah. Uh, this has been what, episode 112? 112. 112. Ooh. Uh, and next up, we'll be continuing right on with City Blades. We will be finishing the book. As always, I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Yep. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you next time. Bye, everyone.